You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about a partnership made in heaven, big ideas and big profits, big, bold visions. Honestly, this is the, the most fun part of my job, talking with talented entrepreneurs who have big, bold visions and helping those visions come to reality. I love people who build stuff, right? So Kelly, welcome back to the show. Uh, obviously, we saw you at Alt Expo earlier this week. Uh, we're we're going to get back to Kelly Winget in a second, but a lot of our audience already familiar with her. Rachel Voss, I want to introduce you to our audience and you and Kelly are building something amazing. But before we dive into what you're building, could you give us a little bit of your background? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having us here today, Andy. So um, my background is very diverse and very different than most folks because it (laughs) encompasses almost every industry sector. But I started out at Morgan Stanley in private wealth management, helping build out their um, marketing and business development platform right after the financial crash of 08 and sort of moving them towards a family office service offering. After that, sort of became really close with some of the folks there, like John Mack, who was the chairman at the time, and ended up going into his one of his venture capital portfolios, where I discovered the sort of aspect of media intersecting with real estate and how you can activate spaces that are being underutilized during off hours. And I fell in love with this. And from there, I I ended up going and joining one of these top uh, experiential marketing agencies just out of of sheer passion uh, called Sparks. And they did things like Google IO and Salesforce, Dreamforce and massive events. And it was in these rooms where I was listening to the chief marketing officers of these Fortune 500 companies stroking their white chin hairs going, what economy should we save this year with our $300 million event? And it dawned on me in that moment that there was a real intersection between real estate, economic development, and experiential. And I happened to sit at that intersection. So I got really passionate about this and was super disappointed when I kept seeing these uh, big companies continuously not choose places that needed that experiential foot traffic, which is like the attention economy, but in real life. And I was sad for Detroit. I was sad for Chicago and all these places that really needed that economic support. So I then ended up taking a job, probably my dream job at the time, which was a global partnerships manager at TED Talks. And that's where I learned there's also a whole market around not just experiential, but impact narratives and the idea of doing good and doing well. And at TED, I got introduced to the people who are really pushing for change like that. And that's when I started getting approached by real estate developers to help them come up with programs that helped upskill communities and create economic development and foot traffic opportunities through experiential. And I, you know, it was eventually when when one person tried to get me to sign a 10 year non-compete in consideration of no money that I said, you know what, maybe I should just compete. And that's when I founded my business. Um, and I, I ended up going uh, um, and reaching out to emerging developers, often women and minority developers um, in in these uh, opportunity zone markets and co-developing with them, going after RFPs like the ones uh, Chicago produced, the Invest Southwest Initiative. And we went on to win some of those properties and are now developing uh, uh, in the corridor about two out of the 12 city corridors uh, that were part of the Invest Southwest initiative. So it's been a really exciting time. And then I met Kelly and we decided to super turbocharge that and take this uh, foot traffic driving economic development uh, strategy on, on the road and 
and start to scale it. Well, I, I want to talk about your partnership with Kelly in just a second, but I, I want to follow up on one thing you mentioned, you know, tax incentives from local governments or state governments. I hear that and it's almost like unfathomable to me, <laughs> unfathomable that anyone even does that. Like, I know it happens. I know companies and organizations get checks, but in my mind, I'm like, isn't it like a 27 year process with uh, piles and piles of red tape? You're telling me you've figured it out and you know how to navigate it and and actually get well, stuff like get, get the green light. Yeah, I mean, okay, you are right. It is a it is a slug. <laughs> it yeah. is definitely a slug and I don't know that if I had known now what I didn't know back then that I I would have been up for it, but I I got through it and the answer is that it's one of the sleepy parts of finance that no one really realizes exists in this public-private partnership space. But mm -hmm. I, I both all of my buildings that I'm building are getting about 40% of their financing from just government tax incentives and grants. And part of that is because, I mean, think about it, Andy, if you're bringing, I'm, if I'm bringing experiential, I'm bringing about 120,000 extra feet to a street in a year. And if you look at markets like Park City and Sundance, if you look at markets like uh, Coachella and Palm Springs, if you look at South by, um, in Austin, they all have the same sort of equation. Every year, if you bring about 120,000 extra feet to the street, then that's going to equal about 300 million added to the local economy and about 30, 60 million to 30 to 60 million added to the tax base. That's a number that is a game changer for local governments. And they're willing to provide, you know, 20 to 30 million in grant and incentives for one, you know, one time payment for the opportunity to get 30 to 60 million added to their tax revenue. It's a no brainer. I like those numbers, you know, I mean, sometimes, uh, yeah, you know, public private partnership. I'm glad when other people figure it out, people like you, Rachel, because it's, it's so tough to me. But Kelly, I want to shift to your background in a second. So you two are you ended up being partners, but your background, you know, similar theme. You were in the family office world, but obviously a very different context, right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've helped companies raise close to a billion dollars in private funds, and that's either through high net worth, family offices, or institutional partners. And that's because I grew up in the affluent, in an affluent home. So, you know, my experience being around wealth was uh, comfortable. And so I would teach, in, you know, companies looking for capital, how to communicate with investors, and then eventually rolling into teaching investors how to find companies looking for capital. Um you know, our, our whole mission is to make alternatives more accessible. Uh, it's been kind of gatekept from people. And the reality is, is that it today, especially being a millionaire is kind of like at the bottom of what you need to do to get involved in alternatives. There's over 25 million millionaires in the United States, a lot of people that can start investing in alternatives. The problem is, is that the information isn't available. So when I started my firm in 2020, it was because I was in a room full of people who were managing billions of dollars and I was the smartest person there. And that's terrifying. So, <laughs> you know, I took the opportunity to start my own firm and give a more boutique experience to investors looking to get into these really unique deals structured well with mm -hmm. tax incentives and huge upside. Um, you know, that that was what I wanted to do. And so through that experience, we've launched three or four different funds. We've, you know, close to $30 million under management today. We've done that in 18 months. Uh, and being a millennial female LGBTQ fund manager, it's, you know, was said to be impossible, but here we are doing it. 
And, and, and Kelly, wasn't your first fund, didn't you call it your I told you so fund? If yeah, I remember it was correctly. my I told you so fund. Absolutely. My I told you so fund. And, yeah. uh, you know, we'll we'll have some news coming out about that in about 30 days. So it'll be a real I told you so. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, come from different backgrounds, both, you know, working with affluent investors, big projects. Obviously, Rachel, you're in New York. Kelly... You're in Texas, and I, I think you described yourself to me as a gun-toting lesbian who <laughs> drills for oil at one point. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> you're you're on. I feel like here's the interesting thing: you both have very similar energy to me, which is like the creative entrepreneurial energy that I love. Like I, I just I sincerely love it. Like that's I feel like that's kind of my tribe, right? Like my my dad was an entrepreneur. It's just sort of in my blood and when I'm around creative people, I just sort of feed on that energy. So I love that energy. And I think you both share it, but at the same time, you come from these different worlds. So Rachel, how did you meet Kelly originally? <laughs> it's it's probably, it's one of my favorite stories. And I, and I think it actually should be titled, I told you so, by, for, by Kelly. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> Kelly and I met at uh, Sally Krawcheck's apartment. We were both investors in her series B. And um, I just overheard this woman talking about how she was an investor in alternatives. And then I heard blah, 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 oil and gas, blah, 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 ammo, blah, 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 Texas. And I just turned around and walked away. And then I heard her then say, and we reinvest the, renew the, the dividends into renewables and also coffee and cannabis and blah, blah, blah. And I turned back around and I said, let me hear more. And then in, at some point, the gun toting lesbian comment did come out and I said, stop it. You're you, you you have to tell me more because, you know, if you are, you know, of the mindset of this sort of global progress in certain ways, help me understand how you're investing in these other things. And she said, Rachel, if you want to see a future that has sustainable energy that is also profitable and happens more quickly, then we have to get the oil industry on board. We have to get the our investors to invest in oil, get short-term dividends, and reinvest them into long-term renewables. And that's going to be the quickest way to your goal. And it reminded me of one of my uh, my uh, family's favorite quotes of, would you rather be right or would you rather be successful? <laughs> and I, I said, you know what? I'd rather be successful at this endeavor. So we ended up getting dinner and it turns out, you know, we were really, really more aligned than I ever expected. And I suddenly realized that actually we needed each other to achieve the goals that we both really shared and just had different approaches to getting there. So Kelly, how, how about you? When you, when you met Rachel, you know, for the first time, you know, obviously you went out to dinner. So, so, you know, you both come from these different worlds. How is it that you kind of immediately realized that you had this shared vision or that maybe, it, maybe you didn't have a shared vision right away, but like, what were the threads, I guess, that you realized like, Hey, we actually have a lot in common. Maybe we should talk about doing something together. Well, you know, this has like been a year long experience coming together and, and figuring out like, are we doing this separately? Are we doing this together? Are we doing this just parallel to each other? Um, you know, a lot of conversations going back and forth of how, how this looks structure wise. That's what my forte is, is, is structure. Um, how do you wrap this in the most tax efficient way? And how do you structure it with the right partners that, you know, everybody benefits because, you know, all of my funds are focused on the fact that we get capital from other investors, right? And that 
I feel like if you're writing a check, you should absolutely get that upside. And the whole point of wrapping fund on top of fund on top of fund is that by the time the investor gets the return in these opportunities, it's been dwindled down so much that it doesn't really matter. When the reality is, is that it is a 40, 50% huge return, but it's not structured well. So my background being in structuring these deals correctly with the deal flow that Rachel has, you know, has come together in kind of this perfect unison um, that creates both tax incentive, tax benefit, and return for the investor and us as fund managers. So it's interesting you mentioned, you know, kind of framing deals or wrapping deals, Kelly. This week on the panel at our event, you know, I talked about the triple net returns framework, you know, which is ultimately as an investor, I don't care about gross returns. I don't care about nominal returns. I want to know what are my returns net of inflation, net of fees, net of taxes. I think maybe you've taken it past triple net to quadruple net or quintuple net. But I, I, I honestly, I love the idea of stacking tax oh, yeah. incentives. And I, I almost think you need it. Right. Because I mean, I walk through this example of if you're in a bond fund that's earning 7% and it's in a taxable account, and if there's any management fee above zero, guess what, Jack? You're negative. Or guess what, Jane? You're negative after inflation, fees, and taxes. You're literally losing that worth. So I think, you know, obviously the Opportunity Zone program, I love that program. But Rachel, what you do is so intriguing to me because it's, it's saying like, well, yeah, we're we're locking in these tax benefits. What Kelly is doing with with structuring things and you know a very tax friendly wrapper. I think in and of itself, opportunity zones are just a great way to grow wealth. But then when you start stacking other tax incentives on top of it, it almost seems like it's not fair. But you make, <laughs> I mean, you two make me feel like if I invest in this, taxes that I'm a fantastic person. So maybe you know maybe I shouldn't feel bad about it. But you shouldn't feel like, I mean, the reality is, Andy, that it, it doesn't compute to me that that if you provide more value to more people, that you shouldn't get more return. Actually, the opposite should be true. So the mm -hmm. fact that we are providing more value to more people is is a wider market. Not all of them have the money to pay us for that value we're creating. And so we had to get creative about figuring out who would pay us for that value. And ultimately, the answer was some sort of fusion or uh, my favorite word, syzygy, um, of government. And they, you know, who's willing to pay for community economic growth? Government. You well, just who, have who has the money, right? I <laughs> yeah. mean, if, if you're raising money, it's like, well, high net worth investors and family offices, they have money. Yeah. Who else has a lot of money? Government. Well, the government has a lot of money. It's like so. Yeah, so and they simple. Wanna... It's genius, I guess. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, it's it's not simple. It's yep. it's actually the the thing that you alluded to earlier. Simple is... but not easy. It's yeah. simple but not easy. Very true. It's hard. You have to sort of net to navigate this. You have to pull together. It's like scrap metal. You have to pull together all these scraps of tax incentives, like, and you have to research them. They don't make it easy. You have to really understand. You so know what? What are they? What are they really paying for? I mean, what is it that? What is it like with, with Chicago or any of these cities? Maybe you could give us an example or two of their offering X amount of money if you do Y. Like how do, how does that actually work concretely? Oh, 
there's so many and there's more that we're still going to tap into post development there's there's neighborhood opportunity funds that give um that give up to 5 million dollars to retailers to you know rebuild their their retail locations or expand to a second one there's new market tax credits there's 4% and 9% tax flips there's opportunity zone uh you know investments there's uh, every time you create new full-time employment, you get a $26,000 check. I mean, there's a ton of different New York. If I build a, for, a certain amount of affordable housing, I get 20, 20% of my project financing in cash up front right away, not even you know free capital. It's a grant from the city. And people just don't know. They're lazy. They think about things in simple terms. And really, it just requires ingenuity and the ability to sort of piece the puzzle together of what benefits am I creating for what people and who is incentivized to pay me for that? And how do I create invisible layers to my capital stack that then actually give me more money for giving more people more value? So if I understand it correctly, you know, Kelly, you're helping to structure this mm -hmm. not only one fund, family of funds eventually in a very tax advantaged way. And then within the fund, it's uh, within each fund, rather, they will be, there will be diversified projects. Each of the projects, they might be a real estate play, they might be energy, they might be all kinds of diversified, but operating businesses that also stand to get all sorts of tax incentives. So it's like we're investing okay. in operating businesses across, across the United States and communities that need them. We're stacking tax incentives within those operating businesses. And then the operating businesses are inside this other fund that has all sorts of tax advantage. Is that basically the Yeah. The so if you if you think about it from the perspective of private equity, which is what I do, right? Um, Rachel knows that it's funny because I don't like real estate. I think it's boring, right? <laughs> so this how is dare how dare you? How dare you, Kelly? I'm sorry, but this is how you make real estate interesting. <laughs> is tax for me. <laughs> yeah, tax incentive and, and private equity. So in private equity, your multiples five, seven X, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're coming in growth equity or you're doing a buyout or something. But if we structure that inside of the tax vehicle of our funds with the element of real estate and combining that with venture private equity, then you're you're taking a real estate investment return, which is one and a half to two X if you're really good at it, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. The return of private equity, five to seven X, combining them together with a tax incentive. So you can take a real estate investment and turn it into a three to five X return tax-free in the funds that we have structured because we do both the real estate development and the private equity development inside of all of it together. And the reason why this, I don't know why it hasn't been done before, but investing in general is very compartmentalized, right? Mm -hmm. You invest in this section, this asset class. But the reality is, is that we're solving a huge global societal problem, right? Which has to be funded and the solution built together holistically. And that's the whole point of why we have Epic as part of our funding um pool because EPIC stands for Energy, Public, Private Partnerships, Infrastructure, and Community. So EPIC, because the, the solutions must be funded and built together at the same time. Understood. So, and you all are investing. So are you, like, if you're investing in infrastructure project or real estate project or any kind of operating business, are you finding a manager, entrepreneur, like an existing project? Because I'm thinking, well, you don't want to end up running 
20 different businesses, right? Like you two aren't going to scale. So Rachel, how how does that process work by, you know, identifying projects that are worth including in the portfolio? That's a great, great question. I'd say, um, first of all, the one thing that I learned you cannot scale is community relationships. So I opt usually to co-develop with local emerging developers, often, you know, minority and female-led development companies. So, you know, we can have access to more benefits, but we also can create sort of capital um, opportunities for for folks that didn't previously have as much access. And so the idea is we go in, we co-develop and partner with local developers. They already have the sort of support of the community. They help bring community-led businesses that bring the charm to the to the asset to life. And then my job is sort of bringing national businesses and national capital to sort of uh, subsidize and support. And in some cases, that's where we even get corporate social mo- responsibility, you know, marketing budgets to support the local businesses there. And that helps add even more layers to the capital stack. And that's how we've sort of scaled the revitalization aspect of this real estate in terms of the industrial Um, I think to Kelly's point, we're looking at both investing in the businesses as well as the real estate. So we we do a lot of research about what emerging businesses are best suited for zones that don't necessarily need to have so much access today to, you know, public transportation and being in the center, center of a city and stuff like that. Something that can create jobs, create foot traffic, create an economy that actually benefits from having sort of less expensive tax incentivized real estate where government would really be willing to put a lot of incentive in there for us to be there and for the business to be there. And in that way, we're able to control all the levers that can affect a business's growth and a development's growth because if the business succeeds, the development will succeed. And if they both succeed, then whatever power infrastructure we help support the build of, whether it's battery storage or energy from waste, they will be necessary in high in demand because we will have succeeded increasing the population and economy and the demand. I, I love that idea. And I mean, it's it's interesting that that you two are focusing on this. Um, I don't even know what verbiage to get it. You know, I might call it like a real estate heavy operating business or but just the idea that you might be developing or purchasing real estate, also investing in the business. And then you're kind of saying, well, I know I have a good tenant or at least... I'm, at least I have visibility into what's going on with the tenant because it's an operating business that we own, you know, and vice versa. Like I have a good, so there's just an alignment of incentives. But what kind of operating businesses are we talking about, right? Because I mean, when I think about real estate, I mean, Kelly, in a way, I agree with you. It'd be kind of boring, you know. You might be looking at a two x equity multiple, and you're right. Yeah, I mean, you have to be really good even to to get that. Operating businesses to me are inherently more interesting. You're gonna have a much higher failure rate. But then when you get a winner, sometimes it can be like a big, big winner, right? So what kind of operating businesses are you attracted to? Do you want to invest in? So there's there's a shift happening from how real estate was being developed the last 10 years and what's happening now, right? Money's expensive. So you can't just like plop an office building or a warehouse in the middle of nowhere and, and like take time to like find a tenant, fill it up um, and then refinance and move on to the next project. You just can't do that anymore. You have to be like more purposeful in the real estate you're developing. So the projects we're building are wanted and needed already. So we're not building a shell and hoping to fill it. Like there are the the turtles there. We just have to fix it, fix the turtle's shell. Um, and I like the turtle analogy. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> it's just the naked <laughs> turtle needs a shell. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> so, I mean, but that's, that's kind of the, the Warren Buffett is I look for the one foot fence that I can walk over rather than the three foot fence that I have to jump over. So it's almost, you're looking for uh, a business need where a business requires the real estate. And then you're saying, well, I have a built-in tenant from day one, if I develop yeah. this asset or and, purchase and this an asset. infrastructure. So infrastructure is a huge part of what we're doing. It, so we have two funds going simultaneously, one focused on opportunity zone and one focused more on this really big, epic, big picture thing. And um, which is going to tackle more of that infrastructure, long-term impact stuff that's attached to this trillion dollars that are being invested in infrastructure projects. Um, my background in oil and gas, and then our cumulative network of energy people in our lives, you know, building energy from waste facilities, power sources, battery storage, the future of energy through these projects. So when we're talking about building a piece of real estate in the infrastructure space, building a power plant, no matter what it is, is going to make an entirely new economy outside of the city and everything needs to go with it. And if you think about like a building that has, so all of our my, the buildings I'm building in Chicago are either passive house and solar powered and all that stuff. And if you think about, if you had a completely self-sustaining building with solar and battery, I don't have to pay for energy ever again. I'm self-sustaining. So what does that mean? I can raise rent because nobody in my building has to pay for energy or power. That's a 30% cost savings. It's huge. And so it's like, you know, it's, it's really, really, really uh, powerful, pun intended, to have sort of not just the ability to self-sustain your power grid, but also the ability to sell power back to the grid as a revenue line item. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. What, what I like about it is it's not, you know, it, it seems like you both are very flexible and kind of open-minded, right? Like like you're talking about solar, talking about alternative energy, but but you're also flexible about energy investment, right? Like our, our nation needs a variety of energy sources. Like that's just the reality, even geographically and regionally, there's not a one sized fits all solution. So Kelly, I, I, I honestly think you're almost a thought leader in this. And I mean, right. Well, Rachel was apparently agrees just because you come from this, you know, Texas oil and gas world. And I, I think if I ask you, well, do you want to invest in oil and gas or do you want to invest in alternatives? Your answer is yes. Is that right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you have to. I yeah. mean, we, we use so much energy. And again, it goes back to oil and gas does more than your electricity, right? Oil is in everything. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't transition from that overnight. It's impossible. Uh, especially if you look at it from the global sense, like there's 8 billion people on this planet. You think that we're going to go to electricity tomorrow? Yeah, right. There's still people trying to figure out how to use coal more efficiently, you know, <laughs> like. And, well, and from even the social justice perspective, you know, poor, lower middle class people, they need access to cheap energy. So I, I think you do kind of, regardless of political beliefs, you know, you, there, you have to balance those, you know, needs of lower class, working class people need access to energy, right? For any sort of uh, sustainable lifestyle. So it's not, it's not happening overnight. Right. And it's, it's pretty rare. You know, a lot of times people will be in this one extreme camp or the other extreme camp with renewables versus, you know, oil and gas. We're incentivizing the good behavior. So we're incentivizing oil and gas investors by showing them that their investment dollars, yes, we're great in oil and gas, but can be better in renewables. 
And so transitioning them into that. So now, oh, I can make money in renewables. I'm going to start investing heavily in renewables. Mm -hmm. Then you see the transition happen. And then you subsidize that for those that can't invest in those power sources by just giving it to them. And if you relieve them of that burden, they're able to do more because they have more money to spend into the economy or they have time and less stress, right? Because everything's tied to money. When you're worried about money, you can't do anything else. Um, Then you're creating more opportunity for people who would otherwise not have it because they can't, they they don't know when and and where they're going to be able to turn their power on. And the reality is that while it's more expensive up front, sustainable uh, energy infrastructure begins to be more cost effective after 20 months. Yeah. And, you know, these types of technologies, obviously, they become more efficient over time. Right. So, it, it you know, Kelly, that long term mindset, I really like that because it's, it's like first generation of this any type of energy is generally not going to be very efficient. Right. But one one thing you've both alluded to, I don't know if you've used the phrase yet, but Rachel, maybe we did in our prep call, investing across the aisle. I think we've already kind of alluded to it here, which is a little bit more of a, I, how would I describe it? it? It seems like you two have like a big tent, which is like, well, look, we're trying to align incentives and show you how we can invest in multiple things, have these be profitable in a way that's win-win for communities but it's also going to make you a lot of money as an investor. That seems to be a very popular message, right? But, you know, do do you find that you're getting buy-in for your ideas from, you know, across the political aisle, across the, you know, geographically? Can you talk about, can you talk about that issue? Yeah. I, I mean, I think first and foremost, We've been living in a world, all of us, where we feel that we're incredibly divided and polarized in, in, in where we want to go. But if you pull most of Americans, most want the world to be, you know, the country to 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 feel safer for, for communities to to grow and and to develop economies and and everybody wants the same outcome. And so I think what I've learned from our my my partnership with Kelly that's been really beautiful is that. If you understand what the goal in mind is, the tension between how to get there is probably the answer, not the obstacle. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that between like loose tax laws and you know sort of more uh, hands-off uh, laws around businesses and what they can do, and tax incentives that help support and fund and aid the ability and incentivize the ability for us to do those good things are just double the amount of flexibility and funding for at our disposal. And if we if we actually get to the lowest common denominator of our goal, which is to have a healthy, happy, sustainable future for this country, which is, I think, all of our goals, then the question isn't, do we disagree? We don't disagree. The question is, how do we get there? And so she and I have these amazing educational conversations that sort of braid together our thoughts. And it's been a beautiful lesson to me that we're actually not all that different and the, we should come to the table together to try to just agree on how we can use our different strategies to a, to get twice as far, twice as fast. Like if you imagine two horses pulling a cart, if they're pulling in different directions, the cart's going to get split in half. But if they're going forward together in the same direction, they're going to go twice as far, twice as fast. And I think we really found that special sauce together. Kelly, what do you think? I mean, I, you know, I might say, well, Texas is red and New York, New Jersey are blue, but money is green, right? So I'm forget purple. I think green is the universal color. 
I, I'm a absolutely green as a universal cover color. I, <laughs> I, I say that all the time. It doesn't matter. Like money is green. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and of course we're not investing in New York, but at least not for now. Um, kind of our, our strategy is to, again, with this public private partnership, right. In Texas, focusing on the infrastructure and energy part of our investment thesis um, makes sense because we have less red tape. We have a lot of incentive from the state to build these types of um, uh, projects. And, you know, because we're women and minority owned and managed, we have access to the funds that aren't available to other people in our space investing in this space. Um, it's our competitive edge, uh, fortunately. It hasn't been for many, 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 many years, but in the last probably five years, like being a woman at the leadership table is our advantage and uh, we get to profit from that. And then obviously investing in Chicago, which is where a lot of our first, you know, breakground projects are, we have kind of a blend of that kind of loose regulatory stuff, but also a lot of incentive to be there and to develop our projects. So you have to kind of put your ego down. I think investors are starting to invest that way now. I mean, I've been doing this for over a decade and the shift in the investor mindset has been dramatic in the last three to five years. Um, impact is definitely at the forefront. Everyone hates ESG, but they want it in their portfolio. Um, you know, what does it even mean? And we've kind of taken away these uh, kind of ostracized terms that mm -hmm. people don't want to talk about impact investing and ESG investing and said, you don't have to put a label on it. Exactly. Exactly. But Cause if you call it ESG, then I'm already like my guards up. Right? <laughs> right. But just when you talk about stacked tax incentives and diversified right. energy, I'm like, well, this sounds great. So I like, I, I totally agree. The label it's, it's more than likely just going to be a, a blocker for it's not, it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. I mean, and I think it's to me, these labels, a lot of times they serve an institutional purpose, right? But you know, your capital base, at least as I understand it at alternative wealth partners has historically been more high net worth, individual investors, family offices and the like. So, you know, it's like, if you don't need that institutional baggage, just junk it. Right. Right. And while we're targeting probably more institutional as we grow, I mean, obviously the Epic Development Fund is a billion dollar fund. So there's going to have to be institutional checks involved, mm -hmm. um, you know, but we we just naturally check those boxes because of our strategy and who we have on our teams mm -hmm. that we don't have to slap an ESG label on it. We don't, we just don't have to. Um, just by doing what we're doing, we qualify on the institutional level as an impact emerging fund or an ESG fund. Um, and we just don't have to advertise that way because we're no, just, I love it. Cause it's, what it, we're doing. yeah, no, I, I love it. It's cause it's totally the, the very, you know, the forced marketing and the PR state, you know, that's the stuff that annoys people, you know, <laughs> yeah. when you're you being you, that doesn't annoy anybody. Like pe people get energized by hearing about this and, and the story. So we're going to do a follow-up episode at wealth channel on the fund itself you know, or, or the family of funds, I should say, but could you, you know, I know we're almost out of time, but, um, could you tease us, give us a teaser, I suppose on what, what, what's happening next? You know, you've mentioned multiple funds. One of them is going to be structured as an opportunity zone fund. 
I know maybe there, there's probably a quiet period for some of these things, but you can you kind of walk us through for the investors in our audience, the family offices in our audience, um, what can they look forward to hearing about? So, um, I, and I think uh, Kelly, you'll probably add a lot more on the infrastructure side, but from the development side, I think, um, what we're really excited about doing is typically if you look at an opportunity zone fund, if you look up with the average return or levered IRR, it's about 7%. We're actually targeting an above 20% levered IRR with our opportunity zone fund because we're not going to use, you know, we're not going to go in, acquire land, take government funds and sit on the asset for 20 years and wait for gentrification. We actually know that it's much faster um, to, to build foot traffic right away. We, we build the entire building around a program. So we pre lease the building before we even acquire the land. We have already decided who the tenants are going to be and we build it with them in partnership. So it's so this is like forced this is like forced appreciation, you know, yes. essentially. Yeah. Yes. And 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 it's and the idea is to have an outsized return much more quickly than people had expected because if you drive that foot traffic, those numbers I put up at the beginning, mm -hmm. those numbers are real. And then the, the what I didn't mention at the beginning is that the real estate market and all those markets I mentioned between Austin, Palm Springs and, and Park City all have the same growth rate in the same amount of time, 200% in under 10 years. That's a lot faster than most opportunity zones, a lot faster than gentrification. And so to Kelly's point, you know, I, I, the turtle and the shell and all of that, I, the way I sort of look at it is most people build pretty buildings and hope wealthy people move in. Well, that sounds really expensive and really limited. Everyone's already targeting that market and it's a lot of waiting. We instead prefer, instead of building pretty buildings and hoping wealthy people move in, we try to build wealth and then hope they make our buildings appreciate. Understood. Well, Kelly, t talk about the structure a little bit, because when I when I hear twenty percent IRR, I mean, I imagine most of our listeners, everyone's like, "I'm listening," you know. But then I'm thinking about, okay, if that's in an opportunity zone fund, which is like a kind of like a super Roth IRA. I mean, when you start stacking that kind of return in a tax, any kind of tax advantage, and you know, investment right. wrapper, gets really exciting, you know, really fast. So. How are you, you know, talk about the wrappers, you know, there's, there's going to be multiple funds. Can you tell us anything about those funds right now? Sure. So the, the first fund is the Epic OZ fund one, and that is going to be strictly an opportunity zone fund because one, we already have projects that we're going to be breaking ground on this year. So it's not like, oh, let's go find the projects. We, we absolutely already know where they are and they're ready to go. Um, We've separated off this uh, piece of the Opportunity Zone Fund from the Epic Development Fund, which is the billion-dollar fund, um, kind of to incentivize the separation of the Opportunity Zone Fund from the business and the venture and, and infrastructure projects. One, because those mo won't, most likely some of that won't be an Opportunity Zone, so we want to make sure that we're getting the most benefit from being in Opportunity Zones through the Opportunity Zone Fund. So the Epic OZ Fund all, all OZ, and um, we're offering investors a 40% discount into the development fund. So it's a huge incentive to get involved with us right now on the OZ fund so that you can have that discount into the larger opportunity fund that is a billion dollars because we're targe targeting $250, $300 million infrastructure projects um, that we already have earmarked for that. Uh, why and not do something big, Kelly? <laughs> Why not do something big? I'm sorry, it's a ten billion dollar fund. Um, no, we we're just taking our piece of the pie. And yep. when we when we started putting together these these projects, 
you know, I've always been a billion dollars from day one and it's been taking some warming up for Rachel to get there. So it felt like Dr. Evil, you know, it didn't sound (laughs) when you're talking about infrastructure projects. I mean, an energy from waste facilities, a $250 million investment on a minimum. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the return potential on an energy from waste facility is a hundred to $150 million a year in profit. So (laughs) net, um, so we needed a bigger fund for that. And so from day one, I've been billion dollar fund, billion dollar fund, billion dollar fund, but our compromise was, okay, we'll also do 150, $150 million OZ fund just for you, Rachel. So this is how we reach across the aisles. Yes. <laughs> so there's, there's a, there's an incentive for investors to kind of come along this journey. Cause it's going to be a long one. I mean, we're talking about a 10 year commitment here, but the way that we have this structured and the types of projects we're targeting, we absolutely are anticipating cash flow from your Opportunity Zone fund. I, I love it. And, you know, I think I call the Opportunity Zones program the best program with the worst name. But my business partner, Jimmy, I think he calls it the greatest tax incentive in the history of the United States. And, I, you know, besides oil and gas, I, yeah, I was actually going to say it for <laughs> Uh, well, it's up there. So, uh, you know, I love it. We're, we're, you know, to our, our viewers and listeners, we're going to have a follow-up episode on Wealth Channel. We dive more into the funds and, you know, s- some more of those details. And I know that Kelly and Rachel, you and your team have some announcements coming up. So I want everybody to stay tuned for that. Um, Rachel, in the meantime, where in our where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about uh, your company as well as, the you know, this project? Oh, uh, absolutely. So um, (laughs) this is going to be my opportunity to teach your audience a new word because I'm going to have to spell it for you. Um, You can go to www.syzygcities.com and that is S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y and then the word cities, C-I-T-I-E-S.com. And syzygy is an astrophysics term that means the perfect gravitational alignment between usually uh, planets, three planets uh, or more, usually the sun, the earth, and the moon. But in my business's case, it is the uh, business, government, and community alignment uh, for maximum outsized returns. And that's why, you know, we've named the company that. So syzygycities.com, or you can feel free to follow us on LinkedIn or uh, Instagram or any of the above, which would also be syzygycities as our handle. I love it. And I I love the brand name for the record. And and Kelly... (laughs) As a reminder, where where can our viewers find you and Alternative Wealth Partners? Uh, AlternativeWealthPartners.com. If you want to know more about me personally, you can go to my personal website, KellyAnnWinget.com. I have a book on there now, so you can go find out even more. Um, (laughs) And you also have a podcast, which I subscribe to. So Yeah, The Wealth Alpha. So if you want to hear me rant about things going on in the financial world, um, please join us. (laughs) I love it. I love the energy. Thank you both ladies for joining the show today. Really, you know, your insights, but also just your your positive energy, your creative energy. Just I, I personally just feed off of it. And again, for our viewers and listeners, we're going to have a follow-up episode uh, after this one. But thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Andy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.